I'm Marty Moss Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. Today on the show, why we human beings who can behave so badly and often do are actually built for goodness, cooperation, empathy, teaching, learning, friendship, and yes, love. I know it sure doesn't seem that way. Our guest, social scientist Nicholas Christakis, says we focus too much on the violent, hateful, and destructive things that people do, which can blind us to the positives in human nature. He studied how altruism can be contagious, how we can be influenced by people we've never met, how to resist group thinking, and what he has learned as a hospice physician being with patients and families at the end of life. He runs the Human Nature Lab at Yale University. He's also the author of Connected, The Surprising Power of Our Social Networks and Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. We spoke recently and began with the coronavirus, which was declared a global pandemic three years ago today. Christakis wrote in his latest book, Apollo's Arrow, about how the virus has changed the way we live. Nicholas Christakis, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thank you so much for having me, Marty. You're welcome. You know, we're marking this third anniversary of the start of the coronavirus pandemic, which has killed a million people in this country Obviously, many more around the world. We've seen reckless and selfish and foolish behavior. We've seen heroic and altruistic behavior. In a sense, two sides of our humanity. You have said the plagues are a feature of human existence. Are you heartened? Are you disheartened? Or both about how we have handled this particular pandemic? I think I would say we've not done as good a job as I would have expected of a wealthy 21st century advanced nation as we could have done. But I would also say that many of the things we've witnessed, which you just alluded to, are typical of plagues and have been features of human experience for thousands of years. So everything from the selfishness and the the misinformation, the belief in superstition. uh, You know, there was, I think, during the plague of Justinian 1500 years ago, there was a... um, uh, a superstition that arose in the town that he describes that, uh, you know, housewives came to believe that if they threw terracotta pots off the second story of their household and they shattered on the street below, this would ward off the plague. And I think it was uh, John of Ephesus was the historian that was writing about this. And he wrote kind of wryly that uh, it became, therefore, more dangerous to walk through the city for fear of being hit by these pots <laughs> than by uh, than by catching the plague. And uh, he was commenting on the on the how superstition and false information arises during times of plague. Of course, we saw that in 21st century uh, with COVID. We've seen um, the kind of uh, people dying alone, uh, which is a wide, you know, for centuries, millennia has been a feature of plagues. We've seen funeral pyres burning day and night. Let's not forget during which is a, which is a which is a, a phrase from the Iliad. This oldest work of Western fiction begins with a plague. The, uh, the, the Greeks were beset by a, by a plague as they were laying siege to Troy. And uh, the, Homer writes about funeral pyres burning night and day. We saw that in, in New York City in, uh, in March of 2020. We saw it in India last summer. We're seeing it in China right now. So all of these features, the, the, the lying, the, the fear, the uh, dying alone, the piling up of bodies and also the kindness and the altruism and the banding together that we've also seen, these have been described for centuries. 
Well, and it's interesting, and you have said this, which when there is a common enemy, people tend to unite, and yet we do see, you know, the vaxxers and the anti-vaxxers, the masker, the maskers and the anti-maskers. What, what is keeping us apart, do you think? Well, also, actually, this also is something that, uh, that goes way back. I mean, again, I, I, I may not have the names of the authors and the dates precisely right in my memory right now, but I think, again, it was St. Cyprian writing in the 6th century AD, who talked about how um, when there was this common enemy, we would all be united in fleshly equality. You know, like, wouldn't we all just see our common humanity and work together and and kind of realize that we were all in it together? So this idea has also been quite old, and un- and, and there are elements of that. I mean, we did see many parts of the country banding together. We did see a lot of evidence of altruistic behavior, of collective behavior. But at the same time, we saw a lot of evidence of divisions and a lot of evidence of um, selfishness. And and this also is a feature of plague. So I don't think, I, I think this idea that we would be united in our fight against a common enemy, which is which is a true observation about human behavior, when it comes to plagues, it's typically, it's always been thought of but it's not it's rarely been realized and unfortunately we saw that yet again in the 21st century of the United States i would have thought we would have done better but we didn't but we didn't you have worked as a hospice doctor in fact you write in the preface to blueprint something i want to read because i frankly it really touched me and you wrote i've held the hands of countless dying people from all sorts of backgrounds and i do not think i've met a single person who didn't share the exact same aspirations at the end of life to make amends for mistakes to be close to loved ones to tell one story to someone who will listen and to die free of pain the desire for social connection and interpersonal understanding is so deep that it is with us until the end. I was very moved by that. It's a really profound statement. But it also made me sad because I felt, you know, this is something that someone may realize at the very end of their life. So what can the dying tell the living about connection? Well, in my experience, observing people who die, it's a process of letting go. And you you sort of let go of Often, first, you let go of bodily functions. You know, you you recognize you're weak and you can't do what you could do anymore. And you let go of activities and you let go of certain hopes for the future, you know, that you might live to see. And you let go of eating. You know, oftentimes people near the end of life lose their appetites for various reasons. And uh, the, the last thing that people typically let go of is um, before they let go of their life is they let go of their connections to their loved ones, to their children, their spouses, the people close to them. And the, the, the fact that that connection is the last thing we let go. Right. And that it's so important to us when we're dying. And, and the living want to be connected to the dying. In fact, there's a big argument about why we feel grief, which is the, the, the awful sadness, the intense it's a very particular feeling, grief. It's a, a very particular emotion. It's not depression. It's not sadness. It's something of its, it's, it's sui generis, but which is, it's it, this feeling at the loss of a connection to a particular human being. We don't feel grief, you know, when we read about 
a landslide in another country, you know, we feel sadness maybe or empathy. Grief originates in our connection to a particular human being. So, so, the, so the, the the feeling of connection of the dying and the feeling of connection of the survivors illustrates, just as you're saying, the deep importance of connection in human lives. I ran across a quote. I don't know who to attribute to it to about grief. That grief is the price we pay for love, um, and it stayed with me because it feels feels true. It sounds like the kind of thing I might have said, although I don't know. If I <laughs> Maybe it was it. you. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen talking with Nicholas Christakis. He's a Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University. He's written a number of books, one called Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. Also one called Connected, The Surprising Power of Our Social Networks and How They Shape our lives. Well, I do want to talk about connection and its its importance to human survival. When I was in school, you know, I turned, I learned it was the survival of the fittest. It was the strongest, the meanest, the baddest. Uh, it was a really a battle for dominance, and that's how we got here. But you have a very different view of human nature. Not that that isn't a piece of it, but there's another piece of it that has been overlooked. Talk about that. Yeah. No. Well, I think that. I think that for too long, both scientists and the person on the street have been obsessed with the dark side of human nature, which you alluded to, and which every human being knows, you know, our, our propensity to lying and, and tribalism and, um, and violence and um, hatred. Um, but I think the bright side has been denied the attention it deserves, because equally, we are prone to love and friendship and cooperation and teaching and we have all these wonderful qualities. And in fact, I argue that um, the bright side is almost like out of Star Wars, you know, like only only light can drive out the darkness, you know, <laughs> uh, only the bright side must have been stronger than the dark side. Otherwise, we would not have evolved to live socially in the first place. In other words, if every time I came near you, you filled me with misinformation about the world, you lied to me, or you stole from me, or you injured me, or you killed me. I would be better off living separately. We would have evolved to live atomistically, separated from one another. But that's not what happened. It, 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 and, and, and what that means, in some sense, is that the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the costs. And they did outweigh the costs. And in fact, that's why we live socially and why we live socially in a very particular way. For example, we don't just meet with each other. We also befriend each other. We form long-term, non-reproductive unions with unrelated conspecifics, other members of our species. This is a very fancy way of saying that we have friends. Right. Every listener is probably taking this for granted that we have friends. But this is very weird. Other animals don't do this. Except other animals for elephants, though, as you have yeah. written, noted. Yes, except for, uh, for certain other primates. Elephants, both African and Asian elephants, certain whale species, and a few other weird exceptions elsewhere in the animal kingdom. But it's it's the it's the large social mammals that um, have evolved the capacity for friendship, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, and anyone listening knows the importance of friendship, and it's rare in the animal kingdom. And friendship is about connection. I mean, obviously, if we're talking about mates and sexual reproduction, it's about survival of the species, whereas Having a friend, being a friend has nothing to do with reproduction, but has to do with what? Connection? 
Well, having a friend, the argument is that there is something about the capacity for friendship that does enhance our survival, uh, either our ability to survive or potentially even our ability to find suitable mates, by the way. Many listeners will know that they found their spouse um, through their friends. <laughs> you right. know, there's right. a kind of fun way in which friendship is important even for that. Uh, and in fact, there's even a sense in which there have been some studies that look at what people find attractive, and they've done these photographs where they show pictures of the same person surrounded by differing numbers of other people, and we tend to think that the person who's surrounded by more other people is more attractive, you know, uh, as a as a sexual partner. So, so there's there's a there's a deep embedding, there's a deep relationship between the human capacity for friendship and our ability to survive, and to some lesser, I think, extent, our ability to reproduce. Uh, and anyone thinking about this can can realize that friendships are extremely useful for um, for the tasks of living. You know, you need resources, you need advice, you need information. Um, you can imagine yourself in more primitive circumstances if you're trying to hunt. You know, it would be good to have a group of people to do that. If you're defending yourself against the attack of others, it would be good to be in a group. So there's something very important about friendship to our survival. You're listening to The Connection right here on WHYY. We'll be right back after this very short break. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Marty Moscoane, and you're listening to The Connection right here on WHYY. Today's guest is Nicholas Christakis, professor of social and natural science at Yale University, where he runs the Human Nature Lab, also author of Blueprint and Connected. When we left off, he was describing how friendship has been essential to our survival as a species and our well-being as individuals. You've even said it's got kind of a foundation for morality, for our moral selves. Yeah, I think I think what happened is is that in order to keep a group functioning where we're not genetically related. In other words, the idea that I would sacrifice my life for my children is a commonly understood idea and it has a very sound evolutionary basis. And uh you know that that for example just to give you a couple of trivial examples that you know if, if once my reproduction uh, ability has reduced, I can increase my descendants by giving up my own life to save my child's life. So the, 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 the fact that we would pay a price to benefit people that are genetically related to us, uh, you can imagine that there might be a kind of very mercenary underpinning. But we are also nice to people who are unrelated to us, our friends, for example, who are not related to us. And this requires the evolution of a set of moral principles and so one of the arguments in the book is that our capacity for uh, cooperation, for example, and altruism, uh, our, our willingness to share valuable information with people we're not related to, uh, even, even in a weird way, even what you and I are doing right now, we're having this conversation, not just exchanging information, you and I, but ostensibly for the benefit of other people. And um, we're kind of giving some information away. And this is this is typical of our species. We do this all the time, but other animals don't do that. So all of these things, all of these features of how we interact, many of which are morally inflected, 
uh, like these altruistic behaviors, co-evolved with friendship is the argument. And so, yes, our capacity for friendship lies at the core of these other moral uh, activities. You have written about and, and done a lot of work on what you call social networks, which I think is related to what we're talking about here. But one of the questions that you look to answer is how do people that we don't know and have never met influence us? I mean, you know, how they, they impact our lives and yet our paths have never crossed. So the two, two, two ways that can be understood. The first is a kind of narrower uh, sort of social network way. So, for example, if I am nice to you, you are nice to Debbie, Debbie is nice to Peter, and Peter is nice to Wayne. So how Peter treats Wayne depends on how I treated you, even though neither Peter nor Wayne ever saw or interacted with you or me. A kind of a so, contagion. Effect. Yes, a kind of pay it forward effect. So we showed experimentally that we could induce this. So how people far removed from me are treating each other depends on how I treat the people I do know directly around me. And we've done many experiments to show that this is the case. So that's one sense in which your question about how can we be affected by people we don't even know. Another sense that everyone listening will know is that right now you don't have covid and your friends don't have COVID, right. but your friends, 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 friends have COVID. Right. And so that germ is going to wind its way through the network and it's going to reach you. You are going to be affected by whether your friends, 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 people you don't even know have COVID. But Marty, there's a second broader way in which we are affected by people we don't even know. And this relates to the capacity that we have for teaching, for that we accumulate knowledge and we teach each other things. So many animals can learn. A little fish swimming in the sea can learn that if it swims up to the light, it will find food there. That's called independent learning. Or if you put your hand in a fire and you learn that it burns, that's you learn something by putting your hand in the fire. Or I can watch you put your hand in the fire and I gain almost as much knowledge fire burns but I pay none of the price. I don't burn my hand. That's called social learning. And that's incredibly efficient. And that's, you know, that's more less common in the animal kingdom than independent learning. It's still uncommon. But we do something that's exceedingly rare, which is I teach you to build a fire. Hmm. And this is very rare in the animal kingdom. So this capacity for teaching that we have, where we set out affirmatively to teach someone else something, they're not just passively observing us, we transmit the knowledge, lies at the root of our capacity for culture and is one of the key reasons why our species has been able to thrive over the last 300,000 uh, years. And it's because each generation is born into a world where all prior learning has been bequeathed to them. When you and I were born, the metallurgy techniques had been invented, uh, mining techniques, road building techniques, the animals had been and plants had been domesticated by people 10,000 years ago. And those were just bequeathed to us when we were born. If you and I had been born 10,000 years ago, we wouldn't have had access to cattle and uh, beef and wheat and rice and any of those things. Other humans invented that and gave it to us. When you and I were born, Newton had already invented calculus. Hmm. We learned mathematics in our high schools that 
Uh, if you had transported us back 500 years ago, we would have been the most learned mathematician on the planet, again, for free. So all of this knowledge we are we are affected by and benefit from these faceless, unknown individuals far away in time and far away in space. I was thinking, too, I mean, there there obviously you know, there's the, the, the good and the bad in groups and in connection. Um, and there is, of course, the power of, of just the tribalism. One of the things you've, you, you have written is, can you love your own group without hating everybody else? And there is a kind of, you know, in-group, out-group sense, uh, you know, that we're, you know, we're the, we're the good people and everyone else are the, are the bad people. Can we have groups without hating other people, other groups? Well, now you've put your finger on one of the most depressing aspects of human nature. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sorry, and I don't yes. know. The, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why we, in theory, we should be able to. I mean, first of all, the, the fact that we love our own groups is a very um, evolved feature of human uh, nature. Again, this is also seen in certain other animals. But the question is, why aren't we just, let's say, indifferent to other groups? Why do we also must we hate them? You know, it's a big difference between thinking this other group is unimportant to this other group must be put to death, right? And unfortunately, we see a lot of the latter as well in our species. And there are a variety of theories as to why it evolved, and one of them has to do with our capacity for cooperation. In other words, in order to evolve the ability to be nice to each other, we had to also evolve the ability to distinguish us from them. Hmm. And I can give you an example of that if, if you'd like. Sure, sure. And I'm thinking we kind of seek out like-minded people or people that look like us. Well, they don't just have to look like us. It can actually, there's a whole literature on uh, so-called minimal group experiments where trivial experiments, like you could take a group of toddlers and randomly assign them to yellow and green t-shirts. And and, they, and you can test that they understand that they haven't done anything to deserve this. It's just They understand that it's chance. They got a yellow or a green T-shirt. And as soon as you give a little toddler a yellow T-shirt and then you show it a picture of a green T-shirted fellow toddler, they'll be like, that's a bad child. Uh, <laughs> he or she deserves to be punished. You know, they shouldn't be given any toys. Human it's, nature just, at work, right? <laughs> yes, it's awful. It's awful. And of course, the grown-up version of that is military uniforms. And um, so, yes, I think... I think it, it doesn't take much to elicit this from humans. That's fascinating. I'm also thinking, and this is something just drawn from our current political divisions, which are, you know, very obvious, very tribal, it feels, um, where people have chosen a side and chosen their camp. I was frankly thinking of, of the insurrection of, you know, two years ago. And the people, the part of the, the mob were obviously held together by some common beliefs about our system and about our country and about the president and about the election. Um, how do we counter something that is based on such wrong and frankly dangerous information? So uh, I'd like to give you, if I can, a three-part answer. Okay, sure. Go for it. So the first part is that one of the deep ironies of human uh, human um, nature is that in order to live socially, we first have to be individuals. In other words, we have to have an individual identity. And we, in our in our species, we do that with our faces. In other words, think about it. Why do we all not have the same face? For our kidneys to do their job, all of our kidneys should look the same and work the same. But for our faces to do their job, they all should be different. So 
we have evolved and it's actually an evolutionary luxury that our faces all look different and we evolved the mental capacity to recognize other people's faces and their individuality. You can tell the difference between other people. That takes a lot of your brain power sure. to be able to do this. Sure. Also an evolutionary luxury. So it turns out that we evolved this capacity to signal and detect our individual identity. This is me, not someone else, precisely in the service of social relations. So you can remember you've, who you've had sex with, who your children are, who's been nice to you or mean to you in the past. All of this requires that you can track individuals, okay? So, so identity is very important to social life. That's the first little sort of tangent. Going back to the January 6th insurrection and the pandemic, one of the things that happens during pandemics and has happened for millennia is that it, it heightens a search for meaning. And in ancient times, this was typically manifested by a rise in religion. And, you know, when death is walking the streets, people quite rightly kind of begin to ask, what's what's the meaning of my life? What's the meaning of life? What is a good society? These are questions that people start to ask. And we saw that with, with COVID as well. We saw people uh, who were like hunkered down at home, had a lot of opportunity to reflect. They were thinking about what's important to me in my life. Many people switched careers, switched jobs. This This great resignation, I actually think, is a reflection of this very stereotypic search for meaning during pandemics. And in the summer of uh, 2020, this was manifested, I think, on the left with the Black Lives Matter protests, where, of course, the killing of George Floyd was sure. awful. Sure. And it was widely seen and rightly denounced. But the, the, the depth and the extent of the protests, I think, reflected not just pent up anger at police brutality and pent-up dismay at the state of race relations in our society, but also the pandemic-induced search for meaning. And I think on the right, that's what we saw on January 6th. The, 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 the mob, the insurrection, the people that stormed the Capitol and caused those deaths of those Capitol police officers, they thought that what they were doing was patriotic, Right. They they narrated that as a kind of, you know, what kind of society do I want? And I think the pandemic played a role in that. So so how, so how do we fix it? So imagine we have a, a large population, our society, and we're divided into groups and we're oh, there's a lot of hatred and animosity and mistrust between the groups. There are two solutions to this. One is to take advantage of this evolutionary capacity we have to draw distinctions between groups which are arbitrary and to go what I call up a level to say, you know, we're all American. You know, we have a common enemy, which is the, you know, the Chinese or the Russians or, you know, someone else. And, you know, in many science fiction movies, this is a trope, right? Like when the aliens invade all the divisions <laughs> of the people, you know, that we all get together to fight the aliens and we don't care anymore. So one solution is to go up a level, and this was appreciated by de Tocqueville and is a key feature of the American psyche, which is this notion that anyone can be an American and that we're all Americans. This kind of commitment to a greater group can help extinguish the divisions within us. Another solution is to go down a level, to the level of individuals. And this is also a feature of the American psyche and was encapsulated not by de Tocqueville so much, but by Martin Luther King, who famously said, I look forward to the time when my children will be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. 
The idea is that we should treat each person as an individual, not as a member of some some superficial group. So that's the solution to the tribalism is to go up or down. Uh, and, and then we can maybe make some progress in some of the problems that beset us these days. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. That's uh, Nicholas Christakis joining us today on The Connection. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen, and he is Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University. He's written a couple of books, one called Blueprint and one called Connected. You know, in preparation for the show, I was thinking about, frankly, a couple of former neo-Nazi skinheads that I'd interviewed for a previous show that I hosted, Radio Times. Um, And I said former because they had left these hate groups. And it was so interesting to me because for each of them, it was a momentary act of kindness in a surprising manner from one was a a skinhead and it was an older Jewish man who had done this generous thing for him that completely shifted his perspective on himself. And I'm curious as someone who's, you know, looks at human nature, whether that makes sense to you. Totally. It makes sense to me from so many perspectives, not just a sociological perspective, not just the perspective from evolutionary biology, but just from the human perspective. I mean, I think that the only solution to breaking down these barriers, either morally or practically or scientifically, in my view, is to recognize our common humanity. Right. And those kinds of acts that you described do just that, right? You, 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 the people see each other as a fellow human being. And um, I think that's enormously powerful and enormously helpful. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, a, a kind of a very small example of that in my own life is uh, from time to time over the years, I have received hate mail. And I used to, I, I don't, I don't as much anymore, but I used to respond to all hate mail. And you'd be astonished how often when you respond to hate mail, maybe you've had this experience. I have, yes. Yeah. And the person says, oh, my God, I didn't know you read what I said. I'm so yeah. sorry. Yes, you know, exactly. Have you had that experience? It's I incredible. Have. I have. Yeah. And then they say, I didn't think you would actually read it. I'm so sorry. I'm not a bad person. And you say, yes, I, I can see why you might have been upset. And uh, here's the part of what you said that I can relate to. Mm-hmm. And then people are very not always, but often very generous. It's just a simple act of talking. You know, it can be so helpful. And not just talking, but even showing some some empathy for that person, even this person who, you know, the day before was sending you a vile note. Which I think is is incredibly instructive because, again, you know, with everyone's in their warring camps, this, this sense that we we don't have a chance to connect with each other. I'm amazed you've had, I mean, like I said, you've been in the public eye too. I, I mean, you can't, no. yeah, you can't help but get no. some of these things. So, yeah, I actually turned them into a, a, a performance piece. So <laughs> is that right? Would you send that to me? I'd love I to will. see it. Yes. It's, it's yeah. actually very, very funny. Marty Moss Wayne's hate mail, a dramatic reading. In one <laughs> <act>. <laughs> I love your program. But you have one little speech error that really annoys me. (laughs) You leave the L out of Pennsylvania. Marty, please pronounce the L in Pennsylvania. It certainly would be nice if you pronounce the state you live in properly. Pennsylvania has an L in the spelling. You say Pennsylvania. (laughs) You pronounce it like 
Pennsylvania. You pronounce it like Pensacola. You should pronounce it like Pennsylvania. It is unbecoming to you as an intelligent person. It sounds ignorant, provincial, and not in a good folksy way. Oddly enough, Governor Rendell has the same defect. Mandel does this too. For him, is he trying to get votes for sounding folksy? You and Governor Rendell should be ashamed that neither one of you can pronounce correctly the state in which you live. Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's Jennifer Childs, founder of 1812 Productions with Dave Jadico and Emily Climo. More from Nicholas Christakis after this very short break. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY. I'm Marty Moskowain, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY. I've been talking with social scientist Nicholas Christakis about how we humans are better people than we think we are. He runs the Human Nature Lab at Yale. Let me, let me pick up on something that you said, and I think something that's actually true about the United States is we are a country that prizes individualism. You know, we have all the mythology about our bootstraps and pioneers going out and in, into the wilderness, um, whether that has has disconnected us as a country because we prize individualism so much and then we don't we don't value the group or the connections that come from a group. Do you see it that way at all? No, I, I mean, yeah, let me just no. add, and let me just add one more thing. And I was thinking about our policies are, you know, we don't have generous child care policies or family leave or even the national health insurance, which would sort of bind us together, I think. I mean, it is the case that our society is less communitarian, let's say, than um, than Chinese or Japanese society. I mean, yes, that's true, or than certain other societies. And it is also true that we have this kind of you know, rugged individualism mythos. So we definitely have a kind of individualistic streak, but we're not totally devoid of collective sentiment. Uh, you know, we have the pluribus unum. You know, we formed a more perfect union. You know, we have a constitutional government. We 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 have, uh, uh, you know, Putnam has written, you know, Bowling Alone, that we have voluntary groups. I mean, de Tocqueville saw this in our society. You know, the volunteerism in American society, the kind of collective expression, you know, that we would invest in the lives of others and in our communities. So it's it's not the case that we are every man for himself. We're, we're not that way either. There are a lot of books written about happiness. We have noticed that. What do you make of that <laughs> from well, your vantage best, point? Well, one of my best friends is a very famous psychologist by the name of Dan Gilbert. He wrote oh, sure. Stumbling on Happiness. He's a very wise guy and a very good scientist, an excellent scientist. And uh he reinforces an idea that is also very ancient, which is happiness is almost always incidental. You know, it's very difficult to pursue it. It often arises uh, as a secondary effect of, of something else. And also another truism about happiness is that you're usually happier when you're less self-centered, you know, when you're investing in the lives of others uh, by whatever means, you know, you can, you can make small investments in a few people or or big investments or in or connect with many people it's this these types of altruistic acts and these concern for others the things that take you away from yourself 
that are some of the deepest roots of, of happiness. I think there's a problem right now in our society, as you surely know, and and the source is not totally clear. Many people blame the internet and social media. You know, we have a, a high levels of mental illness in our society. Some metrics suggest that we are less happy than we used to be. And I think part of it is, well, it, it preceded the pandemic. I think the pandemic worsened it, a kind of increasing sense of alienation that arose because of the pandemic. But there were other factors even before that, including things like income inequality, uh, social media usage, and others. It's difficult to know for sure. But but there is a little bit of a problem. And I, and I think this does relate to a conversation about, about meaning that needs to take place uh, in our society at the moment. What kind of people are we and what do we want? I mean, those are sort of essential questions about what is our purpose on this planet? What is the meaning of life? Those kinds yes. of things. Both at the individual level, I think every human, most people ask a question like that about at some point in their lives. You know, why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? What's important to me? Most people do that. Uh but I also think there's a collective conversation that is beginning to take place about what kind of society are we uh, and what kind of society do we wish to be? Uh, and I think that that conversation has been heightened by some of the difficulties we are facing right now. Climate change, the war in Ukraine, you know, income inequality, uh, the uh, the pandemic after effects. I mean, there's a lot of shocks that have happened to us in the last five or 10 years that I think uh, warrant us to collectively discuss, you know, how are we as a society going to organize ourselves? Yeah, critical questions. You you mentioned social media, which on the one hand can play, you know, on our worst instincts. It's really designed to play up things like conflict and, and disagreement. But it's also a place, I, you know, I'm sure you, I for me, it, it's I can connect with family like I have never done before. I And I wonder if we're talking about connection and and meaning and our purpose on the planet and what is a good society. How do you see the role of social media? Well, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, first of all, you you said something that I think was crucial, which is that these tools, these social media tools have been uh, exploit fundamental properties of our human nature. Yeah, they do. And it's, it's a little bit like soap operas, you know, 40 or 50 years ago before social media, people would watch soap operas. And they'd really come to believe that the actors and actresses, you know, they get invested in the lives of these fictional characters, right? And they, to the point of yelling at the screen or or sending hate mail to the actor, you know, holding them responsible for the actions of their character. And, and that's because we evolved to be really interested in the lives of others. And so it doesn't take much. You can create a soap opera and, and just get us invested in what's happening. I watched uh, 1883, this uh, TV series a couple of weeks ago, and... Uh, I mean, I don't want to give any spoilers, but I was I was really sad at some of the things that were happening. I'm like, this is just fiction, you know, but it was it was a kind of a soap opera feel. And so social media is is like a soap opera. It's exquisitely crafted to exploit our feelings of jealousy, our feelings of envy, our our our, our gossipy sense, like we want to our, our desire to observe what's happening among other people. And uh, in a way that's so extreme that I think is not not very helpful. But it's important to remember that equally, social media doesn't change fundamental human nature. So one of the examples I like to give about this is that my Greek grandmother, who was born in a village in southern Greece, 
over 100 years ago. She's been dead for a long time. But when she was a 10 or 11-year-old girl at the turn of the last century in southern Greece, if you could have talked to her she would and about her social life, she would have said, I have one or two best friends, and there are four or five of us girls that hang out together. And if you could have asked my daughter, Lena, the same question when she was an 11-year-old girl, uh, you know, 14 years ago now, and had an iPhone in her pocket, she would have given you the same answer. Right. I have one or two best friends, and there are four or five of us girls that hang out together. The point is, is that these, so, these, these modern tools, there are fundamental things about our, our desire for love, our capacity for love, our desire for friendship, our capacity for friendship, which have not been changed. So I have mixed feelings about social media. I, I see the danger. I also see the benefits. I see the way in which they are fundamentally not really changing human nature. And just personally, the thing I use the most is Twitter. I, I find Twitter, for instance, incredibly powerful for acquiring information. Like I follow 700 accounts. And every day I learn something from these people in all walks of life, doing different things. I, I, I follow a woman who's a beekeeper in Texas, and you know, I follow <laughs> ex-foreign policy experts, and I follow lots of scientists, of course, and uh, and some journalists and so on. And, and I I learn stuff. So it's a really powerful tool, you know, that I get a benefit from. So it's hard for me to be totally negative about social media. Are you an optimist by nature, by as a result of all the research that you've done, optimist about human beings, human nature? Yes, I would say uh, both dispositionally and characterologically I'm, <laughs> and scientifically, I'm, I'm optimistic. I, uh, I don't want to live in a world which is negative and nihilistic, you know, and I, I don't want to live my life that way personally. And I, and I, I think there's more good than evil in the world. And, you know, I, I, uh, I actually close, I close, I'm going to see if I just find it here, just to read you the last, uh, um, well, maybe I won't read you. I don't know whether to read you the last paragraph of Blueprint or not, but but the, but the book ends with an argument about um, about whether the world is getting better or not. And um, there are some thinkers, including people like Steven Pinker, who's also a friend of mine. And Stephen argues that a very fundamental, Stephen and others argue that a very fundamental thing happened at the uh, during the Enlightenment, which is that the world became more peaceful and more healthy and uh, and more democratic. And, uh, and yes, these benefits accrued differentially to different groups and over different time periods, but that the philosophical innovations during the Enlightenment about the equality of human beings, about democratic governance, and the technological innovations, the discoveries about electricity and magnetism and the, and the engineering accomplishments of steam engines and so on, that these contributed to a tremendous improvement in human affairs and uh, gave us grounds for optimism that the world is getting better. But in essence, what I'm arguing in Blueprint is, is that we don't need to rely just on historical forces to see a path to goodness that actually more powerful, deeper, more ancient forces are at work propelling a good society. And I, and I, and I finish the book with um, the following. I say, we should be humble in the face of temptations to engineer societies in opposition to our instincts. Fortunately, we do not need to exercise any such authority 
in order to have a good life. The arc of our evolutionary history is long, but it bends towards goodness. And I very much believe that. You know, I believe we are a good species um, and that and that we uh, in, in multiple senses of the word word. But do you have to fight against just, you know, as we have been talking, it's so easy to observe in the world, you know, violence and hatred and all the the terrible things about human beings and human nature. Do you have to fight against that when you see the war in Ukraine or you see, you know, the violence that we see in this country? Yes, I mean, I think those things must be resisted. But I guess I would say that every century is replete with horrors, you know, with with uh, slavery and pogroms and uh, colonialism and torture right. and uh, wars of conquest and and just vile things that you know have been going on for thousands of years. I'm not unaware of all this. I'm just saying that there's another strand to human experience, a good strand, where, and everyone knows this, where we are kind and loving to each other. It's always been there. It still is there. It's more powerful than the bad strand, I firmly believe, and I believe that there is evidence for this. And this gives me hope and optimism. And, it, and, it, and it's, those, it's those wells that we draw on to resist and fight against the evil parts. Um, and I and I so I so I I don't I suggest I guess what I should be careful to notice I'm not suggesting passivity I'm not saying oh well you know it'll sort itself out in the end you know I'm I'm what I'm saying is is that we have been equipped and endowed with these powerful tools which we can use to um, fight against the dark side and we should use them you know it's funny in the in the beginning of your book you describe. Um, Maybe you're on the Isle of Crete, but anyway, you're you're playing with your friends, you know, left alone, children playing. Um, hopefully, other you know people listening have, have have their own memories of children at play. And yeah, there's bullying and fighting and arguing and all that kind of stuff. But there is a conversely, you know, a kind of um, cooperation that that can happen. And and people saying, well, that's not fair. You know, that a kind of a sense about <laughs> fairness uh, when it comes to children in play. What does that tell us about human beings? I think that's, I think, you know, there's a big debate about play. And one theory, I think a correct theory is, is that it is, we play so as to prepare ourselves to live socially. And that anyone who's observed a group of small children at play can, just as you said, witness Exactly. Almost every chaos. aspect of yeah, chaos. <laughs> right. Almost every aspect of human nature. And and the kids are working it out. They are practicing. You know, they are practicing living socially. And I think that is one of the functions of play. Um and I think by the way, that's another reason I worry sometimes when we talk about social media. I think people who are don't have face to face interactions during their childhoods because they're using online games, because they're using ersatz social interactions using, um, you know, uh, Facebook or other social media or TikTok, those are not the kinds of social interactions that we do really need to have a healthy and happy life. You need face-to-face -face experiences and ones in which, yes, there's some conflict too, there's some pain too, but also great joy. And you become equipped with the tools you need actually to live socially in a healthy way. You know, it's interesting. That reminds me of something called the Marasmus effect, which is for children that are not loved and 
frankly, touched. I think it, it was true in some orphanages that there's a kind of failure to thrive without that that human interaction, that human eye contact, but even just being held, that that is so much about an individual, a baby's ability to survive. Or an adult's. If you think about when you've had a miserable day or any listener who's most adults listening to this have had something catastrophic happen once or twice or thrice in their lives. And what do you want when that thing happens? You want people who love you. You want to be with them. You appreciate being held by them. You don't even necessarily, you, if they can fix the problem, that'd be great. But you're just happy to have them listen to you. And, um, you know, and I, and, I, and I think there's something very deep and fundamental about that, both, both morally, but also in terms of why we evolved to crave that kind of interaction, especially in, in difficult periods. So just to end, and I guess to pull things together, so you're telling us that what unites us is more powerful than what divides us? 100%, I feel that way. I feel that's an empirical reality, and I think it's also a a philosophical um, guardrail that um, we should pay attention to, absolutely. Well, we have to leave it there. Nicholas Christakis, thank you very much for joining us today on The Connection. Again, he's the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University, author of Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, also a book called Connected, The Surprising Power of Our Social Networks and How They Shape Our Lives. Nicholas Christakis, again, thanks for joining us on The Connection. Arnie, thank you so much for having me. And for more information about The Connection, go to our website, whyy.org slash The Connection. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can download podcasts of the show. You can leave us a voicemail. You can send us an email. You can find us on Facebook, and you can also follow us on Instagram. Lots of ways to connect. The show's senior producer is Debbie Builder. Paige Murray-Bessler is our producer. Our engineer today is Diana Martinez. I'm Marty Moscow, Wayne. Thank you so much for joining us.